the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to the pastor's appreciation breakfast tomorrow. Hope us pastors from your church are planning to join us. Uh, it's going to be a, a fun morning, one of my high, uh, highlighted events for the year. Uh, James Blend is engineering and producing today's program, and we're glad to have you with us. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with David Limbaugh. He's the author of Jesus is Written, Paul and the Early Church. It's really the fourth in a series of uh, books on the scriptures. And this one does a great job of helping us better understand, using the scriptures and a bit of commentary, the open of the, uh, uh, the early church. We're also going to talk with Christiana Holcomb. She's an Alliance Defending Freedom Freedom Legal Counsel. We'll talk about the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights. It's announced that they're going to open an investigation into an incident involving a kindergartner in Georgia where the school district had, without notifying uh, parents or giving them an opportunity to weigh in, train, uh, change their policy on transgender accommodation. Uh, she was sexually assaulted in a restroom. And uh, when you hear what happened when the parents uh, uh, notified the school district, I think it, uh, it will raise your hackles as it did mine. Well, taking a look at some of the developing stories for the day, uh, the claims of an ex-boyfriend of Christine Blasey Ford, the first woman to accuse the uh, Supreme Court nominee Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct, uh, has cast some doubt on her testimony last week at the Senate hearing. And the FBI could finish its investigation of Kavanaugh as soon as today, according to sources. Now, I haven't heard that it has been completed, but that's what we've been hearing throughout the day. Negotiations between special counsel Robert Mueller's team and President Trump's lawyer for a possible interview have stalled over the recent report that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein discussed secretly recorded uh, recording, rather, the president and two letters sent to the Pentagon tested positive for the poison ricin the day after a suspicious envelope addressed to President Trump was also intercepted. Well, in a letter released on Tuesday and obtained by Fox News, an ex-boyfriend of Christine Blasey Ford seemingly contradicts her testimony under oath last week that she had never helped anyone prepare for a polygraph examination. Well, the former boyfriend, whose name was uh, redacted, also said that Ford neither mentioned Kavanaugh nor said he, she was a victim of assault or misconduct during the time they were dating from 92 to 98. He said he was Ford's, um, uh, he saw Ford helping a woman he believed was her lifelong best friend prepare for a potential polygraph test. And he added that the woman had been interviewing for the job of FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office. Well, under questioning from sex crimes prosecutor Rachel Mitchell last week, Ford had said that she had never had any discussions with anyone or on how to take a polygraph or given any tips or advice to anyone who was looking to take a polygraph test. In a letter Tuesday evening that referenced the ex-boyfriend's declaration, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley demanded that attorneys for Ford turn over the therapist's notes and other uh, uh, key materials and suggested she was intentionally less than truthful about her experience with polygraph examinations during the dramatic Senate hearing. Well, the doubts about her testimony surface as another Kavanaugh accuser, Julie Swetnick, uh, who has um, made lurid, uncooperated uh, sexual assault allegations about the Supreme Court nominee, faces growing questions about her own 
credibility. And the FBI may wrap up its investigation into misconduct accusations against the Supreme Court nominee as soon as today, late. Uh, News potentially clearing the way for a final Senate vote on his confirmation within days. If the FBI's report is indeed delivered to the White House today, uh, it's expected that a vote on Kavanaugh's confirmation could come as soon as Saturday. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, must first satisfy a number of procedural and parliamentary uh, hurdles before a vote can be held and including filing a cloture petition, which must remain pending for a full day. In order to formally end debate on Kavanaugh's nomination, McConnell has vowed to hold a vote by the end of the week. Republicans command a narrow 51-49 majority in the Senate, giving them a little margin for error. However, there are a couple of members whose support of Kavanaugh has been cast in doubt. Well, discussions between special counsel Robert Mueller's office and President Trump's legal team over the conditions of a possible presidential interview have not terribly advanced. That's a quote, not terribly advanced. From where they were a couple of weeks ago, a source familiar with the talks is saying the source said negotiations hit a snag when the New York Times reported on the 21st of last month that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein had discussed secretly recording the president and enlisting cabinet members to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. Well, Rosenstein has called the Times report inaccurate and factually incorrect, and at least one source has told um, news uh, outlets that Rosenstein intended his comment about recording Trump to be sarcastic. Well, the president is tentatively scheduled to meet with Rosenstein at the White House later this week to discuss the report. Also, the Associated Press reported that two prosecutors detailed uh, to the Russia investigation for the past year are returning to their duties in other parts of the Justice Department. They joined two other attorneys who left the team assigned to investigate potential ties between Russia and the uh, Trump campaign over the summer. Authorities at the Pentagon found at least two packages of suspected um, ricin. A uh, spokesman said yesterday, the day after the suspicious envelope addressed to President Trump was also discovered. A Pentagon spokesperson, confer- uh, spokesperson rather, confirmed that the two packages Packages addressed to U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis and Navy's top officer, Admiral John Richardson, were suspected of containing ricin. The packages never made their way into the Pentagon, but were flagged in a mail delivery building next door on Monday. A spokesman uh, said the initial tests were positive for ricin, a poison made from castor beans, but the FBI is now doing an, al- uh, an analysis to make final determinations. Well, last Tuesday, the U.S. Secret Service said it had received a suspicious envelope addressed to President Trump the day before. The agency said the envelope was not received at the White House, nor did it ever enter the White House. News of the suspicious packages in Washington came as authorities said two people were taken to a hospital after being exposed to a white powdery substance at Senator Ted Cruz's office in Houston. And on this day in 2003, a tiger attacked magi- magician Roy Horn of duo Siegfried and Roy during a performance in Las Vegas, leaving the illusionist in critical condition on his 59th birthday. And in 1995, on this day, the jury in the O.J. Simpson murder trial in Los Angeles finds the football legend not guilty of the 1994 slayings of his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. In 2008, 13 years to the day later, Simpson is found guilty of robbing two sports Sports memorabilia dealers at gunpoint in a Las Vegas hotel room. He has since been released. It's been about a year. And on this day in 1991, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton enters the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a nationwide wireless emergency test was sent out uh, this afternoon as the Federal Emergency Management Agency conducted its first presidential alert. Roughly 225 million electronic devices across the U.S. sounded off at about 2.18 p.m. Eastern time for the presidential alert that read, This is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. Well, the alert test, which is FEMA's first for the wireless emergency system and is being coordinated with the Federal Communications Commission, made a sound similar to an amber alert or flood watch warning. The alert will appear as long as the device is on and may also show up in the smartphones or smartwatches, I should say. Well, the Department of Homeland Security posted a reminder about the test on Twitter on Tuesday and reassured phone users that their numbers had not, uh, are not being uh, shared with anyone. Your phone has had not been hacked either. Well, FEMA officials estimate nearly 75% of all mobile phones in the country, including major carriers, received that alert. There was also or will also be a television broadcast and radio alert that took place at 2.20 Eastern time. And you can do the math for Pacific, which has been uh, tested for several years. And while users can choose not to participate in messages of missing children and natural disasters, they are required to receive presidential alerts, which are sent uh, at the direction of the White House and act Activated by FEMA. Rules outlined in the 2006 law states that the White House can, and by the way, this is 2006, it didn't originate with this administration. Uh, anyway, it states that the White House can issue a presidential alert only if the public were in peril or during national emergencies. The alert cannot be a personal message on behalf of the president. Well, the wireless alert system launched in 2012. A group of uh, New Yorkers is suing to be able to opt out of the alert, claiming it infringes on their First Amendment rights. Well, we'll see what happens um, with that. But as it stands, that's uh, uh, how it works. Now, if you have a cell phone, you probably got that text from the president uh, today. But the text is the first. And um, some people didn't get it and might be wondering, why wasn't I uh, why was I not uh, included? Well, the test was scheduled for 1120, 1120 yes, a.m. Pacific time. And uh, the decision is usually up to the local or state officials, but can also include FEMA, the FCC, the Department of Homeland Security in determining who uh, when and why. Uh, the National Weather Service is also on that list. The test today was to be the first of uh, the presidential alert system, which will go out to everyone nationwide. If you didn't get the alert, despite being billed as uh, going to all cell phones, there are reports that it didn't happen to some. Well, there could be a number of reasons why, according to Heavy.com. Your phone needs to be WEA compatible and within range of a cell tower. It's possible that your cell phone provider does not participate in WEA program. Or uh, finally, some customers of major carriers, including AT&T, are reporting they didn't receive the alert despite meeting all criterion. No word yet on why they, that, that might happen, but contact your cell phone provider if you are concerned that you didn't receive the uh, alert. Again, can I opt out? Well, it's not likely. There are some reports you can opt out of. My understanding is this particular version, you cannot. One thing that we uh, need to make very clear is that there, there are laws, policies, and procedures that are in place, other protocols to assure that the system is used in accordance with its intended use as defined by law. Well, that's a quote from from Antoine Johnson, a FEMA spokesperson. And while he may have, uh, have the power to do so, no information suggests that President Trump has plans to frivolously mass text the United States, the folks at Snopes wrote in trying to quell some rumors.
rumors. How often should we expect these types of alerts? Well, while local officials have sent out thousands of alerts since the beginning of the program, the type of national emergency that would necessitate a presidential alert will hopefully be few and far between. In fact, we hope it's never needed. Um, And if you didn't get the alert, you're concerned about uh, why, you might want to check with your carrier to find out. Well, the... um, A new law in Oregon that went into effect on Monday makes it a violation for a driver to type in or address, uh, rather uh, type in an address while on the road. Now, this includes sitting at a stop sign or at a stop light. Now, some of our cars, like the CarPlay navigation system, you can um, put in the address of the location you are attempting to, uh, to find. Uh, And your car may allow you to do that while it's in motion with the assumption that you have a passenger who may be inputting that information. Well, now it is now officially illegal in the state of Oregon to do that while driving. A person would have to pull over to the side of the road or uh, parking area and be legally parked before using their hands to access any electronic device. Well, for the second time this year, Oregon has tightened its rules surrounding distracted driving. The first change, which took effect on the 1st of July, uh, left open some loopholes regarding distractions. And as of Monday, people who get caught with any kind of electronic device in their hand while sitting in the driver's seat can be cited. Malheur County Sheriff Brian Wolf believes that the uh, tighter restrictions, which has the potential to send repeat offenders to jail, are very important, saying it's uh, it's amazing how many crashes law enforcement goes to as a result of distracted drivers. Uh, He was speaking by phone, presumably not while driving. He said the distracted drivers are becoming as dangerous as those driving under the influence. The law enforcement is getting pretty active on enforcing these laws. For example, a driver with a navigation device, even if it's affixed to the vehicle, cannot input an address or intersection unless they are legally parked in a parking area or on the side of the road. Another thing people are confused by is they uh, they think they can text at a stoplight or stop sign. They cannot. So if you assume the car is uh, is idled, I'm not moving, I cannot move forward, it's okay? No. The sheriff's statement echoed uh, that of the Oregon State Police Lieutenant Mark Duncan uh, when the law changed in July. If you are sitting at a stoplight and using your cell phone or driving down the road uh, while on it, you are in violation. Well, the newer law carries harsher penalties for repeat offenders, but first-time offenders could also receive a heavier violation if the act of using an electronic device results in a crash. The first conviction of a, is a Class B traffic violation unless it uh, contributes to an accident, in which case it would be a Class A traffic violation. Anyone caught violating the rule a second time within two years of the first will receive an automatic Class A traffic violation. But a third offense within 10 years of the first will carry the mandatory maximum fine of $2,000. Furthermore, it could include a six-month jail sentence. Another cautionary reminder from um, Wolf is that this law does not just relate to using a, a phone while driving. It includes any electronic evi- uh, de- device, rather, whether for communication, entertainment, navigation, accessing Internet, processing emails. Uh, it is all prohibited. Items not prohibited, Bluetooth devices, Newer cars uh, that have Bluetooth wired right into the radio. You can still have electronic devices in the cradle mounted on the dash so long as it can be uh, activated with voice. Uh, or by one touch. Well, the law previously carried a lot of ex- exceptions for individuals who are conducting um, ag-related business, such as driving a tractor down a roadway. And while the uh, new rule isn't clear uh, 
for these kinds of ag practices, agricultural practices. There are still exemptions in place for certain professionals like first responders. Now, this includes firefighters, emergency medical service technicians, tow vehicle operators, even utility companies, so long as they are acting within the scope of their employment and not using it for personal reasons. There are even exemptions for law enforcement uh, officers. Um, the sheriff said he doesn't agree uh, with that one, commenting that patrol cars are equipped with radios for emergency use. And when it comes to emergencies, a motorist uh, could use a cell phone to summon help if you are the only person in the vehicle capable of doing so. Well, in the past, how Malheur um, County Sheriff deputies uh, might have opted to use a distracted driving violation as an educational tool rather than write a ticket. However, this will not be the case moving forward. We gave people a lot of breaks over the, the years on this, but we are going to become more active in enforcing it, Wolf says, and that's true all across the state. The state police have done a good job, but we're going to become more active because the number of crashes we're responding to because of uh, distracted driving has increased. So make a note of it. Uh, they're cracking down. Well, State Representative Newt Bueller attempted to make the first gubernatorial debate with Governor Kate Brown a referendum on her leadership. But the format, fielding questions from high school students from all over the state, made such a direct confrontation somewhat difficult. Well, the low-key debate was uh, with familiar foes against each other um, took place uh, just yesterday. There was no mention, for example, of abortion, President Donald Trump or Judge Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination. Instead, the candidates, which I'm not sure why those would be raised, at least two of the three, uh, instead of the candidates were asked questions about a wide range of issues, which included climate change, vaping, access to high-speed Internet, gun control, and support for disabled students. And more than once during the debate, the students pushed back with frustration when they felt the candidates weren't directly answering their question. Welcome to the adult world. Patrick Starnes, the Independent Party of Oregon candidate, joined Brown and Bueller on stage at Portland's Roosevelt High School. The two leading candidates had a rare moment to trade jabs when uh, Victoria Rosquist, a 19-year-old in Portland uh, who was in the foster care system, asked Brown and Bueller how they would work to ensure foster children had access to dental and mental health care. Bueller seized the opportunity to point out uh, that during the last legislative session, he suggested spending $50 million to create a rapid improvement team to focus on stabilizing the state's foster care system and implement the recommendations outlined by a a, a secretary of state audit that was not flattering. Bueller told the crowd he had been rebuffed by Brown. Uh, Brown, for her part, said that uh, the organ that uh, the her opponent had, in fact, said uh, she used the word a whopper and said that she had, in fact, uh, this was an issue that was very important to her, saying, unlike my opponent, I didn't start working on these issues when I was running for governor. Mm. Well, the debate was aired live, was an opportunity for Bueller, a bend doctor, to introduce himself to much of the state. Bueller's strategy in this general election has been to appeal to the non-affiliated and undecided voter. Voters not affiliated with any major party outnumber the two leading parties. The last time Oregonians had a Republican governor was in 1987. A handful of polls have signaled that the race is competitive. The two candidates were uh, often asked to address um, broad topics in a short format, which led to vague answers. So nothing new uh, in that political debate. 30 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with David Limbaugh, his latest book, Jesus is Risen, Paul and the Early Church. Looking forward to that. We'll also talk with Christiana Holcomb as she relays a story to which um, ADF has responded, Alliance Defending Freedom, defending a family of a kindergartner who was sexually assaulted in her restroom. That following the change in policy at her Georgia elementary school, uh, regarding a transgender accommodation. We'll give you the details and why the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights has decided to take up the case. Well, with Oregon nearly f- at full employment and wages steadily rising, state government tax revenues are surging. Well, you know what that means if you've been here for any length of time. Uh, for instance, compared to last year, personal income taxes are up 24%. Corporate tax payments are also up, exceeding 50% increase over the same period. The revenue surge is so big that the state's economists predict Oregonians will, in fact, be getting a kicker refund on the taxes they uh, file in 2020. I know, it's only 2018. Well, the table below, uh, indicates that if you, um, let's see, if you pay taxes... I mean, how do I explain this? Um, the average person, let's put it this way, the, the average person, the average filer is going to get a kicker of $336. Um, small business owners who are taxed on all their business income, they're likely to get uh, an even bigger kicker. And that will, of course, show up on your taxes in 2020. Um, you can, uh, by the way, go to the uh, Department of Revenue and try to calculate what you might expect. Um, but the average, as I mentioned, for the uh, private filer, $336. And that's for the individual. And it will only go up from there. But it continues to look like we are going to be entitled to a kicker, which used to come in the form of a check. Now it just shows up as a credit on your taxes or a refund if you don't owe any or um, that amount exceeds what you owe. Well, packages with suspicious substances, at least two of which initially tested positive for rice and sent to the Pentagon, White House and Senator Ted Cruz's office in Texas uh, this week were part of a coordinated effort by a former Navy sailor, according to officials. Investigators say one of the envelopes addressed to Defense Secretary James Mattis or the Navy's top officer, Admiral John Richardson, contained a return address leading them to believe it came from the sailor whose name has not been disclosed. Now, who sends ricin and puts a return address on the envelope? It's a bit puzzling, but officials say a tip from the White House led the Pentagon to discover the two packages sent to the Pentagon. Both initially tested positive for the uh, substance. They're now in the hands of the FBI that is continuing to test. The packages never made their way to places where they could damage or hurt anyone. But on Monday, the Pentagon Force Protection Agency detected the suspicious substance and were able to prevent it from doing damage. Well, late Tuesday, the U.S. Secret Service revealed uh, revealed, rather, it had received a suspicious envelope addressed to the president the day before. The agency said the envelope was not received at the White House, nor did it even enter uh, the White House. It's not clear if that contained ricin, but the Secret Service declined to comment further, except to say that it was working jointly with law enforcement partners to fully investigate the matter. Word of the incidents in Washington uh, came as authorities said two people were taken to hospitals on Tuesday after being exposed to a white powdery substance, and Senator Ted Cruz's office in Houston. Ricin is a poison that can take several different forms, but as a purified powder, as in the white powder received in the Pentagon and elsewhere, uh, it can be deadly. It's also um, one of the easiest poisons to manufacture. Well, special counsel Robert Mueller is trimming more attorneys from his uh, office. Another sign his team is, of prosecutors is uh, winding down parts of their investigation into potential ties between Russia and the president's 
uh, political campaign. True prosecutors detailed to the Russia investigation for the past year are returning to their duties in other parts of the Justice Department. They joined two other attorneys who left the team over the summer. The departures uh, confirmed by Mueller's office Tuesday are the latest indication that the special counsel is wrapping up at least some pieces of the investigation that shadowed the president's and his presidency from the outset. But it's only a limited view into the tight-lipped Mueller uh, timetable for possible uh, an in-game. Critical investigative um, a strands still remain, such as an active grand jury probe of longtime Trump associate Roger Stone and ongoing negotiations over an interview with the president. Mueller's spokesperson Peter Carr said Prosecutor Brandon Van Grack has already returned to the Justice Department's National Security Division, but will continue to be involved in cases he was assigned to. Uh, that includes the investigation into further White House National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who is scheduled to be sentenced in December. Prosecutor Kyle Freeney uh, will end her detail to the special counsel later this month and will return to her position in the Justice Department's money laundering section. Van Grack and Freeney were on the team's prosecuting Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Well, besides the grand jury inquiry into Stone, other elements of the Mueller investigation remain active, including inquiries into whether the president took action to obstruct the probe and the central unresolved question of whether the Trump campaign coordinated with Russia during the 2016 election. But after a series of indictments and high-profile plea deals with Trump associates in recent months, Mueller's shown signs of narrowing his focus, referring cases to other officers of the Justice Department, letting other U.S. attorneys largely take over cases he brought and allowing prosecutors to leave his team without replacement. So we'll see um, what will happen next. All told, Mueller's team has obtained six guilty pleas, including from four Trump campaign advisors, unrelated to the collusion. That was the um, uh, the reason the uh, special prosecutor was uh, appointed in the first place. Uh, he um, has pending indictments against 26 others and three Russian companies as well. One can only hope that it will all end one day soon. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, the FBI may wrap up its investigation into misconduct accusations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh as soon as late today. And that's still a possibility, although in Washington, they're three hours ahead. Uh, That could potentially clear the way for a final Senate vote on his confirmation within days. If the FBI's report is indeed delivered to the White House today, uh, the expectation is that a vote on Kavanaugh's confirmation could come as soon as Saturday. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has to first satisfy a number of procedural and parliamentary hurdles before a vote can be held, including filing a cloture petition, which has to remain pending for a full day in order to formally end debate on Kavanaugh's nomination. McConnell has vowed to hold a vote by the end of the week. That would presume, of course, that the FBI report is finished or that it would simply be disregarded. Republicans command a narrow 51-49 majority in the Senate, giving them little margin for error. Numerous key swing vote senators, including West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, Maine Republican Susan Collins, Alaska Republican Lisa Murkowski, have said that they will withhold judgment on Kavanaugh pending the results of the FBI's supplemental background investigation. The FBI's conclusions have been hotly anticipated since Friday when Senator Jeff Flake insisted on an additional review by the agency in a dramatic Judiciary Committee hearing. Top Democrats had uh, demanded the FBI interview more than two dozen witnesses as part of the investigation, saying a time-limited narrow probe, which is what Flake had asked for, and they commended at the time, which uh, would lack legitimacy. However, McConnell characterized those requests as transparent stall tactics in a fiery floor speech on Monday. Well, the FBI is expected to send that single copy of its supplemental report on sexual misconduct allegations 
um, where it will uh, be kept in a Senate Judiciary Committee safe. Two senior uh, Senate sources confirm. The sources added that the report will be sent to the White House before it goes to the committee, and it may be carried to the offices of individual senators by request. All 100 senators and nine staffers will be authorized to read the document, and I mean single document. Senator John Thune, the third-ranking Republican in the Senate, uh, said, uh, speaking to the Daily Briefing uh, with Dana Perino, uh, that he expected to see the report sometime today. Obviously, that will enable the process to move forward, and we hope that we're going to have the votes to get Kavanaugh confirmed when it's all said and done. Well, multiple women have stepped forward. Uh, presumably, they and the names uh, of individuals they claimed would corroborate their stories um, have been interviewed or will shortly be interviewed by the FBI, and their findings, which do, does not include conclusions, will be included in the report. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell must move to end debate on Kavanaugh's nomination to the high court by the end of Wednesday to preserve any hope of holding a confirmation vote this week, as McConnell previously vowed. However, any move to press forward before the FBI report is complete could risk alienating Republican Senators Flake, Collins, Murkowski, all of whom have supported the Bureau's investigation. So we're uh, keeping an eye appealed for any announcement that might come, suggesting that that report has, in fact, been released. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Ah, 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. David Limbaugh coming up in our next segment after news and traffic at the top of the hour. Well, previous FBI background checks should have determined whether Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh had a substance abuse problem. Former Attorney General Mike Mukasey said, uh, spoke speaking to reporters on Tuesday, Senate Democrats initially called for the FBI investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct by Kavanaugh. And when the hearing didn't produce the kind of cooperation they had hoped for, um, they've shifted their focus onto other things. After the update of six previous background investigations commenced, many of the same senators insisted it be expanded to look into Kavanaugh's drinking habits because of evidence that while a teenager in his first years in college, he was a drinker. Background investigations generally determine the suitability of a nominee for public office and inquire into several subjects that includes questions about substance abuse and other relevant matters, Mukasey said in a conference call with reporters. Well, the current probe is the seventh FBI background investigation on Kavanaugh since 1993, conducted for various federal jobs, including working for President George W. Bush White House and serving on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals since 2006. More likely, more than likely, if Kavanaugh had a drinking problem, as some have charged in recent weeks, uh, it would have emerged by now. A former chief uh, nominations counsel to the, the Senate Judiciary Committee says, Greg Nunziata, well, there have been half a dozen FBI investigations. Uh, this is a standard question for every witness. Questions about alcohol and substance abuse would have been asked of hundreds of people who know the judge. Senator Flake convinced the Senate Republican majority on Friday to ask for a seventh FBI investigation of Kavanaugh, a review to the limited uh, to be limited in scope and wrapped up in a week. However, that goalpost has changed as well. Those who uh, commended Flake on the Democrat side who thought it was a great idea are now complaining that it's not possible uh, to live by that um, that standard. Meanwhile, a new letter from a former boyfriend of the uh, first accuser raised some questions about the claims made by Ford. He uh, issued a uh, uh, statement or a letter under oath, apparently, uh, that contradicts some of the claims that she has made. We're not going to go into those, but uh, we're seeing lots of back and forth uh, as to whether or not uh, witnesses 
uh, can corroborate uh, claims that were made or if outsiders can contribute in any way to the ongoing effort to determine the veracity of those claims. And we're hearing from people who are outside the initial orbit, either confirming or denying what they uh, knew, what they'd heard, what they uh, had been said to have um, uh, been involved in some way witnessing the back and forth continues. Oh, I'm not even going to get into that. I'm not even going to get into that either. I mentioned uh, yesterday that the New York Times had issued a rather lengthy, uh, in fact, it was uh, quite remarkable in terms of its length and depth. But on Tuesday, the New York Times published an article accusing President Trump of having engaged in suspect tax schemes as he reaped riches from his father. Well, the obviously anti-Trump hit piece claimed that the president and his siblings used dubious tax methods and even outright fraud to greatly increase the money they received from their parents' real estate empire. But this is a prime example, uh, critics are saying, including the president through his attorney, of fake news. A lawyer for Trump, Charles Harder, blasted the Times, saying the allegations of fraud and tax evasion are 100 percent false and highly defamatory. There was no fraud or tax evasion by anyone. The facts upon which the Times based its false allegations are extremely inaccurate. He further went on to say President Trump had virtually no involvement whatsoever with these matters. The affairs were handled by other Trump family members who were not experts themselves and therefore relied entirely upon the aforementioned licensed professionals to ensure full compliance with the law. In fact, the Times tactically acknowledges that the Internal Revenue Service was fully aware of the Trump's actions and evidently had no objections at the time because the Trump family accountants followed the law. Well, Trump quickly responded to the Times, declaring the failing New York Times did something I uh, have never seen done before. They used the concept of time value of money in doing a very uh, um, old, boring, and often uh, told peace on me added up. This means that 97% of their stories on me are bad, never recovered from bad election call, end quote. Well, the White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders also derided the Times story as a misleading attack against the president's family and noted that uh, decades ago, IRS uh, reviewed and signed off on those transactions. The main uh, thrust of the piece, most observers are suggesting, is that Trump, who has always uh, billed himself as a self-made man, was helped more by his father than was originally thought, and that was perhaps the point they were making. There were a couple of points to be made uh, there. First, the voluminous tax code has all kinds of loopholes that afford especially wealthy people avenues by which to lower their tax burden. It's not illegal to take those deductions. It's simply smart decision-making. So if uh, uh, opponents don't want people using these tax breaks, then they should work to change the tax laws. Um, There's a lot of angst on the part of those who uh, can't benefit by them because the income doesn't reach that level. The fairest income tax would be a flat tax. We don't have that. And although there's been a lot of discussion over the years, it's not likely to be the case anytime soon. Second, the primary reason for this uh, hit piece uh, is to re-inject one of the Democrats' favorite talking points in the midterms, crying about Trump's refusal to release his tax returns. Indeed, the Times explains that these findings raise new questions about Mr. Trump's refusal to release his tax income tax returns, breaking with decades of practice by past presidents. Democrats want his tax returns so as to cook up more allegations of potential instances of tax fraud. Uh, never mind the fact that the IRS audits Trump every year. Once again, this is yet another example of the game of declaring that mere accusations create the cloud of credible suspicion, which therefore demands an investigation. The story is um, little more than another political ploy designed to pressure uh, the president into releasing his tax returns. 
which is not likely to happen if it can be uh, avoided. Well, Planned Parenthood's uh, Political Action Committee employees and family members of employees have contributed $126,886 to Democrats currently sitting on the Judiciary Committee. And by the way, the Kavanaugh objection and all that's happened really does center around Roe versus Wade and whether or not they can retain that uh, that law as it as it stands. And zero percent to Republican senators on that committee, according to data from the Center for Responsive Politics, uh, which includes campaign contributions from 1990 through 2018. Planned Parenthood, which as the nation's uh, is the uh, nation's largest abortion provider, uh, performed 321,384 abortions in fiscal year 2016 alone. Uh, has given Democratic Senate Judiciary Committee members a total of $29,961 in 2018 alone. Many are up for re-election, and that number may increase. Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee currently is battling over the the uh, a fate of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, who was nominated by President Trump on the 9th of July. All 10 current Democratic members of the Senate Committee uh, have received contributions at some point from Planned Parenthood's political action committees, employees or employee family members. None of the 11 current Republican members of that committee, according to the data published by the Center for Responsive Politics, have ever received a contribution from Planned Parenthood's political action committee or others. Senator Amy Klobuchar, who sits on the committee, has received $30,000, I should say $30,400 from Planned Parenthood affiliates, which is more than any other member of the Senate Judiciary Committee has received in the years since 1990. Senator Feinstein received 21710 uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, 11065 Senator Maisie Hirano, 2000 Senator Cory Booker, rather, $8,752. Kamala Harris, $46. Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, Blumenthal received uh, $11,499 from Planned Parenthood affiliates. Senator Christopher Coons, $16,949. Uh, Dick Durbin, $16,715. And Senator Patrick Leahy, $7,700. Uh, we're ranking all of the, po- the profiled organizations whose uh, PAC or employees and their employees made contributions to candidates, party committees, other PACs, outside spending groups, 527s, and the current cycle, the organization uh, explained in its compilation of the information. And the real question um, that's being uh, raised and why every member of the Democrat Party on the Judiciary Committee opposes Kavanaugh is the possibility that if the question of Roe versus Wade were to be set before him on the court, it could fall. Well, a new um, op in a new op ed, a, a liberal writer suggested expanding the definition of veteran, which, as we currently understand it, is a man or woman who has served in the military defending the interests of the country to include those involved in conflict resolution on behalf of a government as well as peace activists who are not employed by the government. Dr. Warren Blumenfeld, a professor from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, started off his piece claiming that he observed a man receiving a 10 percent discount at the vet um, for being a military veteran. I thought that was that this uh, war not only uh, um, let me restate that I thought that this was not only appropriate, but the defenders of this country's security should be given an even greater discount. He wrote well, Blumenfeld. Uh, then claims that he has uh, long thought about whom our country includes in its socially constructed category of veteran. And he asks, can we as a nation begin now to consider expanding the category of veterans to include the diplomats and um, mediators 
uh, those working in the conflict resolution, activists dedicated to preventing wars and to bringing existing wars to diplomatic resolution once they have begun. Individuals who stand up and put their lives on the line to defend our country from threats to our national security, as those in our nation's military do, are true patriots and veterans. Well, there's no question that they are true patriots, whether or not they're veterans is a a case that he attempts to make in his op-ed piece. Should they be considered veterans and uh, eligible for the kinds of benefits, although you might dispute uh, the benefits that veterans uh, are eligible for are always beneficial, uh, that's the question that he is raising in his op-ed. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. After um, the news and traffic, we'll hear from David Limbaugh, his latest book, Jesus is Written, Risen. <laughs> Get that right. Jesus is Risen, Paul and the Early Church. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Christiana uh, Holcomb. She's an ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom Legal Counsel. We're going to talk about the, the uh, Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, that announced that they're going to open an investigation into the sexual assault of a kindergartner in her uh, Georgia elementary school by a fellow student after the policy with regard to transgender access uh, to uh, restrooms and so on was changed without parents' knowledge or consent. We'll get into that later in the program. Again, Christiana Holcomb from Alliance Defending Freedom. Well, as you know, Christianity was originally confined to a small circle of believers centered in Jerusalem. Historians continue to be astonished at how rapidly it spread throughout the Roman Empire and soon transformed into the world's most popular and widely spread religion. Well, in Jesus is Ridden, Risen, rather, Paul and the Early Church, my next guest, best-selling author David Limbaugh, he provides a riveting and approachable account of the birth of Christianity and how it miraculously grew from a small circle of believers into the world's most popular faith. Well, Jesus is Risen examines uh, Luke's picture of the early church in the book of Acts, including Paul's tireless activities spreading the gospel. And he also studies the six New Testament epistles in which Paul covers some of the historical material chronicled in Acts and addresses issues related to the early church. In his uh, fourth book in the best-selling series of Bible guides, he uh, will whet your appetite as a reader uh, to read the words of Scripture directly, instill a passion for the Bible, and encourage people to make reading and studying uh, the Bible a lifelong commitment. Jesus is Written is a faith-affirming book for Christians of all ages and at all stages of their faith walk, and I'm so delighted uh, to have uh, David Limbaugh with us today. David Limbaugh is a lawyer, nationally syndicated columnist with Creator Syndicate, a political commentator and author of eight national bestsellers, including True Jesus and the number one bestseller, Crimes Against Liberty. He is the brother of radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh, or perhaps I should say it the other way around. Uh, he lives in Cape uh, Girardeau, uh, Missouri, and uh, he and his wife, uh, live there, and we're delighted to have him with us to talk about his latest book, Jesus is Written, Paul and the Early Church. Welcome. Hey, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I'm excited about your book and to introduce it to our listeners here today, because it is not only a great addition to the series, but I think it's a great addition uh, to the, the uh, books available on the, the start of the early church that the average Christian can get excited about and uh, perhaps uh, gain a new appreciation of uh, the Bible that we enjoy and the, the status of the church. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. 
Well, this, is, uh, as I mentioned, is a series. Can we talk a little bit about what moved you to begin writing? Um, you're a political commentator, as I mentioned, but writing about your faith really grew out of um, the uh, the maturing of your faith. Yes, I, when I first became a Christian, I, I was on fire for the Bible and wanted to soak up as much information about it, about it and theology as I could. And so I began reading and studying. And I uh, started writing a book about the Old Testament about 30 years ago, or I'm not sure how long anymore, but it didn't really do anything. I didn't have a platform. I had never written a book, hadn't started writing any columns. Uh, and then, well, you know, probably 25 years later, I have uh, 15 years of columns under my belt. I now have about 20. And uh, I had studied that much more all, all since the time I started. So I thought I'm going to, and I'd written five books, but then I'm going to revisit this and do this again. So I wrote a book about my chronicling my faith journey, and also it was a Christian apologetic, a defense of the faith. And I wrote a book about the uh, all of the places in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ. Then the last book was the, the a book about the Gospels, going through all the Gospels in chronological order, uh, narrating a, a narrative summary, and then a, an ongoing commentary with it. Now, after that, I wanted to continue with the New Testament books, so I started out writing this book with the Book of Acts, which is the book that follows the Gospels, of course, and Paul's epistles. Uh, I was going to write, I was going to go into all of them and, and the other New Testament writers' epistles as much as space allowed. As it turned out, I only had space in order to make this a you know reasonably small book. Uh, not small, but 300 pages, 320 pages. I, I stopped it at six of Paul's 13 epistles, and they are the uh, pri- the missionary epistles: Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans. So those were believed to have been written first by Paul. So I, again, the, the Book of Acts is the history of the early church, and these first six epistles, first sit, written uh, six epistles. Of of Paul give you a flavor for what he was doing on his uh, three missionary journeys and his trip to Rome. And you, I, I, my goal is for people to see this from a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. These events really happened in history. Now, in the way that you've written them, and maybe you can describe it a little bit better than I can, um, it's it's designed to to uh, read in chronological order to give us a, a better picture of the events as they unfolded, as you pointed out historically and what benefit do you think we can derive from having a having read through the scriptures in that way uh, so that we understand that history and how it relates to us and our walk of faith well you know what what strikes me is that and it always has since I developed a Christian worldview is that human beings are the same now as they were then we are mm-hmm. fallen people though made in God's image and we uh, are constantly uh, at war with our flesh and Christianity uh, the, the first Christians uh, faced fierce adversity from the and opposition from the ruling authorities from the religious authorities and trying to prevent them from spreading the gospel because the Jewish authorities didn't want them to spread the gospel because they didn't just view it as a competing religion but as a religion that was uh, perverting their true religion uh, they were they, the Christians claimed that that the new, the uh, that Jesus was a fulfillment of the Old Testament law not an abolition of the law and they the Christians said that he was the Messiah and he was the Savior and the Jews thought that or they had anticipated a Messiah that would deliver them militarily and politically from the political oppressors and be triumphant and reign forever and Israel would have its glory that way. But when Christ, when Jesus came and was crucified and died a humiliating death on the cross, they 
believed he was accursed because the Old Testament scriptures, their scriptures taught that anyone that was hung on a tree was accursed. So it couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He didn't fit any of the, what they'd anticipated about it. But the truth is Christ did become a curse and he became our curse for us. He became sin so that we, so that our sin could be expunged, so that we could be redeemed by faith in him. His perfect righteousness uh, can be imputed to us by faith in him for the remission of our sins. And so we are declared righteous almost as a judicial act so that when God looks at us for salvation purposes, he sees only Jesus Christ. And so we are saved. Now, in the moment we're converted and saved, uh, we don't become righteous in fact, but we are empowered. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the God, and, and he uh, empowers us to overcome sin on a daily basis. And so it's a, a struggle, a daily struggle for a Christian throughout his life and where he becomes hopefully more Christ-like, holier, sanctified is the term. It's a process of sanctification. But Christians from the very beginning uh, experienced adversity and opposition. They had problems in their churches with disharmony. Uh, they follow false teachings and false teachers. And these are the same kinds of problems that churches uh, encouraged in, encounter today. We're talking about the book, Jesus is Written, Paul and the Early Church. Uh, written by my guest, David Limbaugh. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about this uh, fascinating narrative that gives us a, a better understanding of and appreciation of the founding and the early days of the church. We'll get into that in just a few moments when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with David Limbaugh. He is the author of Jesus is Written, Paul and the Early Church. It is the fourth in a series of books on the Bible, um, the best-selling series of Bible guides. Now, Paul is a prominent figure, of course, in the New Testament. He uh, has written a significant portion of it, and there has been a movement within the church of late in which Paul has simply been disregarded for a variety of reasons. One, they don't like what he has to say. Two, they suggest that the Paul in the book of Acts is a different Paul from the one who penned the epistles and other books of the Bible. What do you um, talk a little bit about Paul and the role that he played uh, in the early days of the church and your view of those who would simply uh, try to disregard him as being relevant in the 21st century? Well, Paul uh, was transformed from the the Christian's greatest persecutor to a person who was persecuted and Christianity's greatest evangelist. Uh, He was converted on the Damascus Road. He was on his way to Damascus uh, to round up Jewish converts to Christianity. Christianity and bring them back to Jerusalem to imprison them because he was outraged that they would betray his faith, betray their faith. And on his way, Christ encountered him in, in a blinding light and blinded him literally for three days. And he became and, he, and call, Christ called him to be the main apostle to the Gentiles. So from that point forward, Paul was the fiercest advocate uh, for Christ and the and the most ardent evangelist. And he went through the entire Roman Empire and planted churches, established churches on three missionary journeys, as I said, and on a mission to Rome. Uh, and he then would later write letters to these churches after he established them, instructing them uh, as to practical Christian living, and then also about how they were, uh, the, the troubles in the church and what they ought to do to correct those troubles, and he would correct and discipline them. And he also ex- expounded on 
Christian doctrine and theology, and we get much of our theology from him. Uh, I, I disagree with those who say he presented a new gospel, a different gospel from Jesus Christ. They both presented a gospel of salvation by faith alone. Uh, Christ told the thief on the cross uh, that, that he would be with him today in paradise. He didn't have time to be baptized, so it's not faith plus baptism. It's not faith plus circumcision. It's not faith plus works. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul repeatedly articulates in his New Testament books. And uh, some of the things that uh, the, the current scholarship in modern culture doesn't like, or they believe he's a misogynist, anti-women, and disrespectful and all that, because he tr- he taught about the authority structure in the family and that type of thing. And they were highly offended about those kinds of things. But I believe that Paul uh, was speaking the Word of God. I believe his letters, as part of the New Testament books, are inspired words. They're all the words of God uh, through Paul and the other apostles. And and I believe they're inerrant. And I reject the idea that he deviated from from Jesus's teachings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As would I. Let's talk about some of the early struggles in Rome. Um, We are in great uh, debt to Paul for writing the book of, uh, of Romans that informs so much of our faith. But let's talk about the Rome, which was the hub of the Roman Empire, and the challenges that the church had in not only being established, but growing and, uh, and expressing the gospel with the challenges that they faced, as did other uh, churches, Corinthians, for example. Talk a bit about um, the early struggles in Rome. Well, they had... Uh, teachers who were leading them astray from the gospel, and, and the, they, he called Paul called them false teachers, and and they were either puffed up with pride and trying to elevate themselves, or they were demonic. Who knows? But they any any gospel that deviates from the true gospel of God, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, has to be nipped in the bud because it will lead people astray from their eternal salvation. That's why it's such a serious matter for the gospel for us to get the gospel right. And Paul was adamant, not a, a matter of ego. Uh, because he was preaching it, but he was commissioned directly from God, supernaturally uh, imbued with the gospel message by Christ, and he took that message to the churches, including the church in Rome. And some of the different, uh, there were factions in these churches, and they were following one leader or another, saying, we follow Paul, we follow Apollos, or whatever. And Paul would say, no, you don't follow Paul or Apollos, you follow Jesus Christ. You have to be a united body in Christ. It's a community effort. You all are vigil in your relationship with Christ, but you're also a community of believers together, and you have to be in harmony or this thing won't work. And he wanted uh, these churches to be strong and solid and so that they could also be jumping off points for further evangelism. And, and that's what occurred. And so Paul just wrote this beautiful letter to the Romans, which was heartfelt, mm-hmm. and talking about the various theological issues that dividing the Jews and the and the, I mean, the Jewish and Gentile believers, and talking about circumcision, talking about the Jews' special role as God's chosen people, and then what, uh, whether the the Jews were needed to do anything, or, or whether Gentiles need to adopt Jewish practices, and what the interrelationship between uh, Jews and Gentile believers were. And it turns out that there's no difference, according to Paul, that there's no Jew, no no Greek. We're all one in Jesus Christ. No separate rules for different kinds of Christians. And I, I think it's it's helpful for us to revisit um, that period of uh, the early church because we can lose sight of the heavy lift that it was to try to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ into a pagan culture with new believers uh, and and Jewish believers and try to explain how all of this um, worked together. In uh, in Acts 14 through 20, you write about the suffering and the success of the early church while spreading the word. Talk a little bit about that that early struggle um, that if they had failed to just faithfully do what Jesus had called them to do, the church could very easily have simply drifted into obscurity. Yeah, I mean, um, 
you know, Paul, when he when he talked to these churches, he he was saying, why do you insist on uh, building yourselves up, and why do you insist on saying that uh, you you need to be circumcised? Because if you do that, you're going to to weaken and dilute the message, which is Christ and Christ alone, faith in Christ and Christ alone. And if you do that, uh, you're going to disincentivize people from coming to Christ, and you're going to devalue Christ's uh, essence and his and, and his importance in this entire project, and he's everything in, in our salvation. And so, if 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 this is if it's impurified at the source, then obviously it can only get worse as it fans out. And because of the impurities, uh, there would be. Christianity would not possibly have exploded and and expanded as it did. The same, it's analogous to why God was so adamant that the Jews completely conquer the, the promised land of mm-hmm. Canaan when they when they took over, because that was to be their that was to be their promised land and their home base, and and they had to be a purified religion because they were going to be entrusted with the law, and they were going to produce the the offspring, the descendant of David, who would ultimately be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the line of David. They had to be preserved and set apart as God's holy people, his mediators, to ultimately bring the gospel to all of mankind. And if they'd allowed these other, the Canaanites and other peoples, to stay in that land, it would have have impurified them, and it would have led to sexual immorality and idolatry. And by the way, they didn't completely mm-hmm. remove all those. And that's why God, that's one of the many reasons God struggled with them throughout the Old Testament because of their disobedience. And if, if they had not been disobedient, the process would have uh, processed much more rapidly and efficiently. And it's analogous to this. You just can't impurify and dilute the gospel and expect it to have as powerful an effect. I'm studying that portion of scripture right now, Joshua. And uh, you're so right about, you know, being very careful to obey with the Lord tells you to do and there are reasons for uh for what he uh what he tells his children and now us to do as well well the book not only gives us uh, history but it also gives us rich theology that you find in scripture it's clear that uh you believe as do i and uh, followers of jesus ought in the inerrancy of scripture and the value of every word that's profitable for for teaching and training and reproof and all of the things that uh, we are yeah. told the book is titled Jesus is Risen. And I know um, your your heart is that as um, your readers better understand this portion of Scripture and the, the history of the early church, that we have a, a stronger desire to open God's word and to make it a lifelong practice of reading, studying, meditating, meditating on it and applying it to our own hearts. Absolutely. Uh, as I said, when we are uh, saved, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but we need to access the Holy Spirit through the spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study, fasting, become closer to God through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk a greater Christian walk, a more profitable Christian walk, a nobler uh, Christian walk, and so that we can be more effective as evangelists and better witnesses for Christ. Now, the title of the book is Jesus is Written, Paul and the Early Church. My understanding is that you're going to complete the tour through the rest of the New Testament in your next book, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. But for now, I would encourage our listeners to pick up Jesus is Written, Paul and the Early Church. It will help to uh, once again bring the script alive and and uh, grow our appreciation and regard for God's Word. Uh, David uh, Limbaugh, thank you so much for your writing and for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. By the way, it's Jesus is risen. I want people to understand, not written. They must have written that wrong on the Jesus is risen. Okay, I, I apologize. Again, Jesus no, is okay. written, uh, is risen, <laughs> Paul and the Don't early me. church. <laughs> A lot of hosts have done that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, thank you so okay. much. We'll make sure thank we get that so right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh, bye-bye.
<laughs> Jesus is Risen is the uh, title of the book, and it's published by Regnery. Up next, we're going to talk with Christiana Holcomb. She's an Alliance Defending Freedom uh, an attorney. She offers legal counsel. And this the situation we're going to be talking about really is um, very disturbing. Um, if you have young ones listening, you might want to encourage them to uh, to go elsewhere. It, it uh, involves a kindergartner who was sexually assaulted in her in the restroom of her elementary school. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I learned of a rather disturbing story recently, and I wanted to make sure that you were aware of what was happening. We learned just recently that the United States Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights has announced that they're going to investigate a complaint that Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, along with a local family law attorney, filed against the city schools of Decatur on behalf of a kindergartner who was sexually assaulted in her school bathroom. Now, the complaint explains that the school's new transgender restroom policy opened the door to the assault of a five-year-old female student by a boy in the girls' restroom at her elementary school. Well, here to help us understand what happened and what will likely happen next is Christiana Holcomb. She is an Alliance Defending Freedom Legal Counsel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, this is very disturbing and, of course, every parent's nightmare, but one doesn't expect this kind of scenario playing out in an elementary school where parents have a, 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 an expectation that their sons and daughters are going to be protected. Tell us what happened. You're, you're exactly right, and this is such a tragic situation. We all know that schools have a duty to protect the privacy and safety of every student that's entrusted to their care. But unfortunately, the Decatur school system in Georgia failed in that. They enacted a new transgender restroom policy, which allowed little boys into the girls' restrooms, locker rooms, and shower and changing facilities. And it ultimately resulted in a little five-year-old girl being sexually assaulted by her male classmate in her girl's restroom. Now, my understanding is that the policy was changed there without uh, proper notification uh, of parents. In fact, uh, some of the parents, I understand, found out just inadvertently on a Facebook page for the superintendent of schools. So many parents were not aware that there had even been a policy change. That's exactly right. Now, obviously, this policy is deeply problematic, regardless of whether parents were told or not. But it just adds insult to injury. The school district um, went rogue. It didn't notify parents. It didn't involve the community in this decision. It just up and decided it was going to implement this new transgender restroom policy, frankly, with tragic consequences. Now, this five-year-old's mother approached the school, told them what happened, thinking that they would be as mortified as she was and would immediately try to uh, come up with some way to either hold the individual responsible and uh, change the policy or at least respond in a way that the protection of her daughter would be the, uh, the priority. But that's not what happened. Yeah, again, the school district continues to fail at every turn. The family did exactly what they should have done. They notified the school district, those who were in authority, those who had the obligation to protect this little five-year-old girl. But the school district refused to investigate the sexual assault. They refused to remove the male classmate from the little girl's classroom. And frankly, they subjected this little girl's family to yet further indignity by essentially reporting them to Child Protective Services, where they were investigated. And of course, 
no wrongdoing was found on the part of the little girl's family. But the school district at every turn has ignored its duty, not only to protect the privacy and safety of every student, but then to take seriously an allegation of sexual assault. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom submitted a complaint on behalf of uh, uh, this family with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. And on the 14th of September of this year, uh, you were informed that, in fact, an investigation was to begin. That's exactly right. Unfortunately, the Thomas family has not received any justice from the Decatur School District. So we're deeply grateful that the federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, has taken this allegation of sexual assault very seriously. They're opening an investigation, and we're hopeful that ultimately the Decatur school system will change this transgender restroom policy to ensure that this type of sexual assault never happens again. Now, my understanding is this policy is not reserved solely for restrooms, but that would also include locker rooms and other um, facilities or other uh, times when boys and girls would naturally be segregated from one another for the sake of privacy. That's exactly right. The superintendent listed not only restrooms and locker rooms, but shower areas, athletics teams, and even overnight lodging, sleeping quarters on school trips would be shared, um, mixing boys and girls. Again, students should be able to go to school to focus on their education and not have to worry that their privacy um, or safety might be infringed upon. The Decatur School District has fundamentally failed in this area. So what happens next? The Department of Education Civil Rights Division is investigating what authority do they have and could this result ultimately in a change in policy? Absolutely could. Yeah, so the U.S. uh, Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights has the authority to investigate violations of Title IX. And what the school district in Decatur has done is created a sexually hostile environment for all of their students. But particularly, it's going to impact little girls. So we are optimistic that as the investigation proceeds forward, that the facts will come out, the truth will come out, and we're hoping that justice will be done for this little girl. My understanding is that she was... Her family didn't feel that she was being protected, that her interests were uh, being taken into consideration. They've had to move her from that school to another uh, another school. That's exactly right. Again, the Decatur school system at every turn has really ignored this little girl and her pleas for help after her sexual assault. They refused to even consider removing um, the little boy who perpetrated this crime against her um, to move him from to a different classroom. So ultimately, the Thomas family was forced for the little girl's own sake to take her out of her school and move her to a different and unfamiliar school. So again, she's uh, just she's just been hurt at every turn. And so we're just hopeful that the U.S. Department of Education will bring some resolution to the situation. Now, while this happened in a restroom at Oakhurst Elementary School in Decatur, Georgia, Um, How concerned should parents be in Beaverton, Oregon or Portland, Oregon, about similar policy changes and uh, which threaten to compromise the the safety and security of other boys and girls in school? I think they should certainly be concerned and they should absolutely be keeping tabs on what their local school districts are doing, particularly as it relates to this issue. Um, Unfortunately, school districts across the country are relying on revoked um, Obama era guidance that... uh, falsely claimed that the law required these policies. That's simply incorrect. Title IX is very clear that school districts have an obligation to ensure that their school districts are free of sexually harassing environments, and these transgender policies clearly are not working. Well, I am so grateful for Alliance Defending Freedom for once again stepping in and helping a family to confront 
uh, clear policy that is not in the interest to not only of their daughter, but other children who remain at that school and perhaps in other areas uh, around that uh, community. I want to encourage our listeners to consider how we can support the work of Alliance Defending Freedom. And I, I'll just for the interest of, uh, of being open, I have been a financial um, uh, contributor for an, an quite some time of Alliance Defending Freedom because I've come to appreciate and recognize how vital they are to protecting religious freedom. And, and in this case, just the safety and security of a child in a public school uh, environment. Uh, throughout the month of October, uh, Salem Media is focusing on Alliance Defending Freedom and the tremendous benefit they are to our community. And I would like to encourage you to consider, perhaps for the first time, becoming a donor like I am. You can do that a couple of ways. You can dial 800 800- 654-3969. That's 800-654-3969. You can also look for the ADF banner at ChristianOutlook.com. Again, that's ChristianOutlook.com. Now, Christiana, let me ask you what we might expect in the near term. When the Civil Rights Division takes up a case like this, um, what, what should we expect next and how long before we anticipate some kind of resolution? Well, it's really difficult to guesstimate and these things can take quite a long time. But we are optimistic that because the Office of Civil Rights has opened an investigation, they're taking this seriously, um, we ultimately hope that we will see resolution and that this terrible transgender restroom policy in Decatur, Georgia, will be fixed before another child is harmed. Well, I thank you again for the work that you're doing and so grateful for Alliance Defending Freedom. Thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Again, uh, Christiana Holcomb is an Alliance Defending Freedom legal counsel. Uh, and the Department of Education has determined that they're going to take up the case, their civil rights division of this uh, five-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted in the restroom of her elementary school. Uh, I would encourage parents, if you are not aware of the policy in the schools your sons and daughters attend, that you discover what the policy is there so that you are prepared to um, to do what's necessary uh, to make sure that your sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters are being properly, their safety and security is being taken into consideration and that it is a priority. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Hey, did you know the Chronicles of Narnia is going to be a television series and some films are in the works by Netflix. Now, I'm a little little nervous about it. I um, I know that there are other classic books that have been embraced um, uh, primarily um, because of their a wholesome sort of Christian standard that's been reproduced in ways that you probably wouldn't recognize. The most recent example is the book uh, by Marilyn Lang that was a bit of a flop because they decided they were going to reinterpret uh, the story. But Netflix, rather, has signed a multi-year deal. They're going to create a TV series and movies based on C.S. Lewis' beloved fantasy novel series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, it's been done and redone and done again. But the deal with C.S. Lewis' company marks the first time that the rights of all seven books have been held by the same company. So my guess is they wouldn't uh, uh, make those rights available if they hadn't also made sure that uh, they were going to remain faithful to the storyline. It's a, it's wonderful to know that folks from all over are looking forward to seeing more of Narnia, the author's stepson, Douglas Gresham, said in the statement, as reported by The Hollywood Reporter, the advances in production and distribution technology have made it possible for us to make Narnian adventures come to life all over the world. So the fact that he's directly involved is a bit of a, a consolation, and I'm more hopeful. Uh, he added that Netflix seems to be the very best medium with which to achieve this aim, and I'm looking forward to working with them uh, towards this goal. 
Well, originally published in London between 1950 and 1956, the year I was born, the Narnia books have sold more than 100 million copies, been translated into more than 47 languages worldwide. Um, Ted Sarandos, who's the chief content officer at Netflix, said that C.S. Lewis' beloved chronicles of Narnia stories have resonated with generations of readers around the world. Families have fallen in love with characters like Aslan and the entire world of Narnia, and we're thrilled to be their home for years to come. Again, one can only hope they remain faithful to the main storyline. Well, set in the fictional realm of Narnia, a fantasy world of magic, mythical beasts, and talking animals, the series narrates the adventures of various children who play central roles in the unfolding history of that world. The books have made a huge impact on adult and children's fantasy literature since World War II, and there have also been three movie adaptations previously released. They were, from my perspective, very well done. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, the last in that series was produced in 2010, so it's been eight years. Well, the BBC also produced a TV series based on the books that um, aired back in the 1980s, narrated the adventures of various children who play central roles in the unfolding history of that world. But this uh, promises to be a 21st century version, taking advantage of all of the technology that's currently available to at least make it visually stunning and much more believable than uh, back in the day. Uh, But one can only hope that the storyline will remain true to um, the story as it was written and has been retold many, many times by C.S. Lewis and those who have come to love the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, tomorrow, as you may know, is the Pastor's Appreciation Breakfast. This is an event that we here at KPDQ are so honored to offer local pastors and associates and ministry uh, workers all across the, the Portland metro area. And tomorrow is our opportunity during this Clergy Appreciation Month to extend our gratitude for the men and women who serve in the pulpits all across uh, our communities. Uh, We know that there are challenges that these uh, servants who are called by God to serve as shepherds and pastors, and they're willing to to continue in that role despite the, uh, the, the challenges of it. Um, but we are looking forward to just uh, taking the opportunity to say we recognize the sacrifices that you and your family makes. We uh, recognize that we as a radio station do not replace the church, uh, that we want to encourage and supplement what you're doing. But we are not the church and acknowledge uh, who you are, what you do and how uh, how much we need you. So we're going to have our pastor's appreciation breakfast. That's tomorrow. And uh, because we will be um, we say breakfast, but it extends for those of us who are involved into um, more of the day. We're going to share the best of the Georgine Rice Show on Thursday, as we'll be uh, at that event. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to uh, stepping away from uh, some of the more serious news. Although I need to put an asterisk on both Thursday and Friday, because it's entirely possible that the uh, FBI uh, report on um, Judge Kavanaugh and the investigation regarding his confirmation uh, that may be released as early as today, certainly by tomorrow, if uh, what we're hearing uh, is true. And if that's the case, there may be some breaking news, that we, in which case we would uh, cover some of that news. So we'll certainly try to keep you updated on that as things occur either on Thursday or on Friday. All right. Well, I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with David Limbaugh, his latest book, Jesus is Risen, Paul and the Early Church, great read, um, and it's part of a series, the fourth in his series. As a, a staunch uh, believer in Jesus and follower, uh, he does a great job of inspiring us to really consider some of the details around what Scripture tells us occurred in the early church. All right, we're going to take 
take a take our break of for about to what twenty two hours in this case forty eight hours something like that. Anyway, we'll be back live on Friday. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.